This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome, Murder in the Black. This is your host, MD, and I have a special bonus episode for you in light of Black History Month. So everything's always Black History Month over here as we are sharing stories about uh, all crime that happens in the Black community. But because it's February, we want to give you some extra bonuses. So I am here by myself. And Steph will join me later in the week where we will give you our weekly episode. So go ahead and grab your coffee if it's the morning and your wine if it's the evening. But either way, let's jump into this heartbreaking story. So the story that I have for you today is the about the murder of Shania Davis. And the title that I'm going to give this story is the story of a five-year-old angel. Um, This has got to be probably one of the most heartbreaking true crime stories I have ever researched. I remember hearing about this crime back in 2009, but not really, you know, fully knowing the full story. I remember seeing the headlines um, and that they caught the, 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 the murder, you know, they caught the, the, the guy that did it, but I never really kind of dove into it any deeper than that. And so when I decided to pick this case, I really didn't know the full details of this, this, you know, what I was really kind of getting myself into. And once I got into it, I was like, I don't know if I can tell this story without getting choked up, emotional, um, or making you guys severely depressed. But I'd already, you know, put in so much time and I felt like it's only fair that I endure um, the heartbreak of this crime because my perspective about it is is quite simple. It's that, you know, it's the same way that I feel when it when it comes to uh, the events that uh, happened on 9-11. Every year when 9-11 comes back around and we, um, you know, remember what happened at the Twin Towers and um, just on that day in general, I, I always get extremely sad, extremely depressed. Um, and I always tell myself leading up to that day, I'm not going to indulge in all the stories and all the, the media because it just really, really weighs heavy on me. But I eventually cave in and I tell myself that it is only fair that I sit in the pain that the victims' families have to sit in every day. So that I sit one day in the pain that the victims have to deal with every day. So the reason why I went ahead and decided to to tell this story, even though it is going to be painful. So this is my trigger warning for you. Um, The reason I went ahead and and decided that I was going to tell the story is because while it is 
very tragic and while the hurt is very real and while you will likely get emotional, sad, angry, depressed, um, all of those various emotions as you hear this story, I think that it's only fair that we sit in that pain, we sit in that heartbreak for just a moment, for the 45 minutes uh, to an hour that it takes for me to tell you this story. Um, because this is what her father, her loved ones, um, have to live in every day that they think about Shania. Because for them, it's a daily reminder of the loss. While for us, it's just momentarily. You know, so that's why I chose to to share this story with you today so go ahead and buckle up and um get your tissues because you may cry so this is the story of shania davis and shania davis was born to antoinette davis and bradley lockhart she was a mixed uh beautiful little girl born in north carolina um and her father was white her mother was black um and for the first Roughly about 18 months of um, Shania's life, she lived with her mother, Antoinette. Now, Antoinette, um, she really just wasn't, I would say, responsible. You know, didn't have a lot going for herself, didn't have a job, kind of was in and out, didn't have a, a settled home, was staying with, you know, various different family members. And so once Bradley bought a home where all of his children, because he had more than, uh, because Shania was not his only child, once he bought a home that, that all his children and family could stay in, Shania moved in with her father. And that's where she lived until the months, uh, a few months preceding her death. So Bradley, you know, cared for her. He was, she, he was her sole provider. And while she had some con connection um, communication with her mother. She really didn't know her all of that all that well because her father was, you know, who she was around. And the reason why she ended up going back to live with Antoinette, her mother, was because Bradley felt like it was important that she establish a relationship with her mom. Antoinette finally got a job and was showing signs of stability and um you know, that she had got on her feet and she was just doing better for herself. So he felt like, you know, hey, um, why not? And from my research, what I what I kind of picked up on, it wasn't it wasn't explicitly stated, but it, it looked as if Bradley was traveling a lot more with his job as well. And so I think that the combination of, you know, his his job requiring him to travel Plus, you know, Antoinette was doing well for herself in terms of she had a job and she was, you know, more stable than she had ever been. Um, Bradley felt like it was, you know, um, a, a decent, good idea to let Shania go live with Antoinette. Now, Antoinette, although she was um, showing signs of stability, had a job, was earning some good money, um, she did not have her own place. So at the time, she was living with her sister, Brenda. And um, Brenda's boyfriend also lived there. They lived in this uh, trailer park uh, called Sleepy Hollow. And Brenda's boyfriend, um, and who was also the father of her kids, um, lived in this trailer park that Antoinette moved in with 
with her and was staying. So Brenda and her boyfriend lived in the back. They stayed well, stay, They stayed in the back room, um, and it was Brenda, her boyfriend, and Brenda's children. Now, it doesn't say how many children, um, but they were staying in the back room. And then in the front room was Antoinette, Shania, and I believe um, just one other of Antoinette's kids. Now, I'm not sure um, if Antoinette had, you know, more than two kids, but we definitely know for sure that Shania and Shania's half-brother was living in the, the home at the, on the evening that all of the events transpired. And so uh, on November 9th, the evening um, that all of the, you know, the, the tragic events that started this whole thing, um, a gentleman by the name of Mario McNeil, he was living with his girlfriend slash mother of his daughter. Um, he was living, you know, in Fayetteville with her. And that night he was just really kind of on a drinking binge and he was getting high off cocaine and the mother, April, she was asleep. And so he decided that he was going to start texting, you know, random girls trying to hook up. And so he began texting several different girls. Um, and one of the girls that he texted was Brenda, Antoinette's sister. But Brenda's phone was off. And so Brenda didn't get the text messages. And so he just, you know, continued to text other women. And finally, one of the women responded. And she was like, yeah, you know, you can come over. So he heads that way. It's three o'clock in the morning by the time he gets there. Now, where the girl lived was also Sleepy Hollow. So the same place that Brenda and Antoinette lived. And so he gets there. He, you know, bangs on the girl's door. And the girl doesn't answer because she fell asleep in between the time, you know, they were texting and the time that he arrived. So he texts Brenda again and she doesn't respond because obviously she's asleep. So this is where the story, this is where I'm going to pause in the story and I'm going to break um, the actual timeline of the events. And I'm going to break this story down by the various stories and perspectives that occurred, you know, on this night. So I'm going to first give you Brenda's version of events. So Brenda... Brenda states that at 5.30, she heard a door, a bedroom door open. Now, it clearly wakes her up. So she wakes up her boyfriend and she asks her boyfriend, did you hear that? And he said no. And so she, you know, kind of, you know, they sat there for a few moments trying to see if they heard any additional sounds. They didn't. So they went back to sleep. Well, then at 6 a.m., Antoinette came into their room and woke them up stating that Shania was missing, that she was no longer in the bed um, where she placed her. She placed her in the bed with her younger son. So they get up and, and everybody begins, you know, you know, looking for Shania. It's six o'clock in the morning. So it's like, where could she be? Antoinette goes outside and she begins to knock on doors and asking people, have you seen my daughter? And while she was outside, the uh, her youngest son, who they don't name in court records, so that's why I don't, I'm not naming his name. And plus, um, I don't know it because they identified him as CD in the court records. So I'm just going to call him her young son. So her young son, um, 
you know, pulls over, you know, Brenda and says, hey, I saw Mar Mario in the house last night. And the boyfriend, you know, Brenda's boyfriend says, are you sure? And he's like, yeah, I saw him. He was here. And so when Brenda gets this information, she calls and texts Mario and Mario doesn't respond. So then she calls um, the girlfriend or the, you know, who, where Mario was living. She calls uh, her and she, you know, asks like, is Mario with you? And he's, she says, no, she's not with, he's not with me. So at this point, Antoinette walks back into the, the, the home and Brenda says to Antoinette, I think that you need to call 911. And Antoinette was very hesitant. She was like, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe we should just keep looking. And Brenda presses her and he, she's like, no, we need to call 911. She's missing and we need to call her. So at this time, Brenda does not tell Antoinette you know, that she, that, you know, she doesn't tell her what her son told, told her. So she just kind of keeps that to herself, her and her boyfriend, they don't say anything. They just press Antoinette to call 911. So at that point, Antoinette calls 911. And then Brenda goes outside and she notices that there's some theses on the railing, of, you know, that's leading up to, to their, their home, to their door. And she thought that was really odd because she knows for a fact that it was not there that night when she went to bed. But, you know, she just kind of puts that to the back of her head and she, you know, just waits for the police to show up. When the police show up, they, um, you know, begin to conduct, you know, their normal investigation, asking questions. But the police notice that Brenda and Antoinette are very distracted. Like both of them are, they're, they're on their phones. They're not paying, you know, attention um, to really the, the officer to really get the information that the officers need. So the officers asked them to come down to the station. Now, when the police were there, they found, um, before they took the, the women to the station, they found a uh, a blanket in a like a trash can near another unit that Antoinette and the boyfriend identified as belonging to Shania. It was Shania's comforter, and so they you know they pack, packaged that evidence along with the the feces that was on the railing leading up to the home. So when they get down to the station, they're questioning Brenda and Antoinette. Now, you know, this is Brenda's perspective. So we're going to focus on Brenda's uh, interrogation or not interrogation, right? Because they were just questioning her. So they questioned her. And while she was there, she was still distracted because she's not under arrest. She's not a sus She's not a, a person of interest. So the police are going to obviously allow her to keep her, her cell phone. So even while she's in the station, she is texting. Well, the police don't know that she's actually texting Mario. She's texting, you know, him and Mario actually is responding back at this point. So he, you know, and so the communication is, you know, why were you at my home? And he said, you know, he tells her, I wasn't at your home. She said, I know you're lying. And then he's like, I'm not lying. Let me come over there. And Brenda's like, no, you can't come over here. And so they kind of, you know, are going back and forth. And then Brenda tells him, don't text my phone ever again. And so then that's the end of that communication. Now, instead of Brenda telling the police, hey, um, 
this is what my nephew told me. I'm texting Mario right now. She keeps all of that under wraps. And her um, reasoning is because she felt like she didn't want to jump to conclusions that it could possibly be, you know, Mario that took Shania. In her mind, she didn't feel like he did. And so she just kind of kept that information to herself. So that is Brenda's perspective. That's her story of the events that happened that night. Now, here are the three stories, the three perspectives from Antoinette. So Antoinette tells the police, she comes, you know, she like, just like, um, just like Brenda was brought to the station and she is questioned on, you know, what happened? What's the timeline? Because the police need to know that as they begin to search for Shania, as they are trying to piece together, where do they even begin to look? So, um, and a lot of times, I just want to say this, that a lot of times the police are doing that, not out of, we think it's you, but they're doing it out of, you know, there are things that we see and we hear and we may observe that we may not feel are important, but as trained investigators, police recognize the importance of those things. And as they piece together various different stories, things that maybe we thought were minor or insignificant turn out to be can turn out to be very significant and very important to the case. So they're questioning Antoinette just to be able to understand, you know, what is the timeline of events? What could you have possibly seen or heard that would be important to this case? So the first story that Antoinette tells the police is that she put her daughter and her son to bed, put them in the same bed, went to sleep herself. She woke up um, at six, like a little bit before six o'clock because her son came and told her that Shania was no longer in the bed and he doesn't know when Shania left. And so um, they, him and, so her son, her and her son kind of looked around the house for Shania, didn't see Shania. So then that's when she woke up her sister. And then the, the story of the events with Brenda coincide. And, you know, she said she, you know, began looking for her and that's when she called 911. So that was her, her first initial story. And um, the police, you know, they take that for what it is. It, it's, it seems to line up with what um, Brenda told them. And so they let, they let Brenda and Antoinette go. Well, the, the problem with this story is that it wasn't true. And so what ends up coming out is some video footage because they obviously put out a um, Amber Alert on Shania and a hotel sent in video footage of who they believed was Shania with a man named, well, it doesn't say who the man is, but with who they recognized in the footage later as Mario McNeil. So remember, Mario McNeil, the last time we, we, we talked about him, he was texting, trying to get in touch with a woman so he could go hook up. So when the police get this information the next day, right, because Brenda went missing on the early morning hours of November the 10th. So when the police get this footage on November the 11th, they obviously bring Brenda, 
and they bring Antoinette back to the police station to, to identify like what is happening because this isn't lining up with what we now, this piece of evidence that we now have. So, and excuse me guys, I'm like sniffling and I'm coughing because I, I got a little bit of a cold and so I'm trying not to do that in the mic, but if you hear me take a little pause, that's what I'm doing. So they bring them back to the, the station and Antoinette now gives a different story. So her second story still doesn't involve Mario. Her second story is that her boyfriend was at her house the night of November the 9th. They got into an argument and her boyfriend, who I am not going to name because he did not do anything wrong. And so there's no point of putting his name out there. But if you want to look it up, it is in the court records. So her boyfriend, she claims they got into this argument and he then hits Shania. And the last thing she saw was him taking Shania the early morning hours of November the 10th. And they drove off in this, you know, I think it was a maximum. And she has not seen or heard from her boyfriend since. So the police say, okay. So they go out and they arrest. They Well, they go out and they bring in the boyfriend. They interrogate him and they eventually arrest him based on the word of Antoinette. And so even though this is not lining up with what they see in the footage, at this point, they don't know, the police don't know that this is not Mario McNeil. I mean, they don't know that, they don't know who this is in the footage. Um, we learn later that this is Mario McNeil. So I have the, the, the benefit of hindsight, right? But the police don't at the time. So they bring, once they identify who this guy is in the footage, they bring Antoinette back in. And they say, Antoinette, we know you're lying. We know that you are lying. You're not giving us the full story. We need the full story. And simultaneously, Brenda is being questioned. And Brenda finally reveals this, you know, truth about what her nephew told her that Mario McNeil was at her house, that he, the nephew saw him there, that she was texting him um, during her in, initial in, um, questioning. And so they take her phone, they, they make copies of these text messages, and um, that's when they begin to um, really press an Antoinette harder because they recognize that she's not telling the whole truth. And so... Um, Finally, Antoinette gives the last of her three versions of events. Um, you know, I'm sorry, the last of her three stories. And this is finally what she said. She stated that um, she received a text message from Mario. And he came over to uh, the, the house and, and he was asking her for the $200 that she owed that she owed him. Um, and so he tells her, according to Antoinette, that you either pay me in sex or you pay me in cash. And so she offers up her daughter, Shania. And she tells the police that Mario was going to take Shania to a hotel, have sex with her, and um, that was gonna be payment 
uh, of her debt. Then at the very end, she changes her story and says that Mario was going to take Shania and let other men have sex with her or like another person or another individual. Um, either way, it's ridiculous. And it's, it is like mouth open, shocked, appalled. What kind of mother would do this? Like all of the questions are right here in this, this moment right here. And I know that when I was researching it, it, it literally blew my mind. Um, and then I could not, you know, even really like, I had to push myself past like this part of the story because I really wanted to just stop right here. Like what kind of mother does this, right? So I already know as a listener, you're out there like, what in the world? Because I was like, what in the world? So at this point, the police finally feel like they have the right story. It's lining up with what Brenda told them. It's lining up with what the video footage is showing. And so um, they, you know, put out an APB on um, Mario and, and, and everybody is searching and looking for him. And so then finally Mario, Mario turns himself in voluntarily. Now we'll get to Mario's version of events. So Mario alleges in his questioning that he received a text message from Brenda to pick up Shania on the porch on the early morning hours of November the 10th. He said he didn't know why, but she told him to do it, and so he did. So he said he picks her up on the porch, and he goes to the Comfort Inn Suites, where he waited for further instructions. He said he received a phone call later um, in you know that morning, like maybe an hour or so later, that stated that he was to drop Shania off at this cleaning establishment, this dry cleaning establishment with some unnamed men. When he dropped her off, some unnamed men picked her up in a Maxima and drove away. And he said after that, he you know hadn't heard or seen of Shania since. And so that was his story. And he was very adamant about it. It, it, you know, at first he denied ever knowing who Shania was. And and then finally he tells this story and the police are trying to push him and push him on like, where is she? Like, who are these unnamed people? And trying to like, you know, really get him to talk. And he was very um, stubborn and just unwilling to, to help and unwilling to give any further information. And then he just blurted out of nowhere. Um, I'm waiting on a call to come kill her. And the police were like, what? And so, you know, at that point, they're just, they're, they're like, okay, we're done. This guy's not gonna, he's not being helpful. He's not gonna talk. There's nothing more that we're gonna get out of this guy. This guy. And so um, they basically just have to go off of what they have which is this video footage. So they go back and they take a look at this video footage and they recognize that at, at six o'clock in the morning, like little after six, about 6.03, Mario walks into um, this comfort in suites and he walks in here by himself and he checks in at the front desk and he tells the front desk clerk, you know, the 
of that, he's here with his daughter and he's driving his daughter to Virginia to meet up with his mother later in the day. So they just needed a place to stay, uh, you know, to kind of rest and get ready for the last leg of the trip. And so, you know, the, the clerk's like, okay, you know, and so they get, he gets, he pays his deposit, gets the room. He goes back out to the car where he takes like several minutes, like another 10 minutes or so, um, and then walks back in and the clerk and the camera footage, you know, testify that he was holding, you know, who we now know to be Shania. And they walk to, you know, the room. After maybe, so so that was at about 6.17. And so they said at about 6.36, the camera picks footage up of Mario again, where he's walking to the breakfast area. He gets some food and some drinks, and then he walks back to the room. Then at 7.34 a.m. exactly, he's caught on the video footage again, this time holding Shania, getting on an elevator and walking and exiting out the back of the Comfort Inn Suites to, to leave. The a custodian at the exact same time was walking out to the parking lot and he, you know, spoke to Mario. Mario looked at him and didn't speak back. So that kind of raised, you know, the custodian's, you know, alert and was just kind of like, that's odd. This looks odd. And he noticed Shania and he said he thought that the little girl was sleeping, that Shania was being held over Mario's shoulder. So he watches them, but he's trying to act like, you know, he's not really watching them to not be obvious, but he really feels like in his gut that something's off, something's wrong. This doesn't look right to him. And he's trying to kind of place like why it doesn't look right, you know? And I think we all have those moments, right? Where we're like, I don't know why this is wrong, but it seems wrong. Like it's just, it's wrong. And so he's like watching him, but also acting like he's working. And so he notices that Mario gets in the car, puts her in the car and drives to the front of the hotel, gets out, asks for his, that's when the security cam catches him again, going to the front desk, getting his deposit back. And then he leaves, gets back in his car and drives away. And the, the cameras notice that he makes a left-hand turn and get and goes toward the highway. And so this is where, you know, the FBI and the police at this point, you know, this is what they have to work off of. They don't have much um, due to exigent circumstances. And if you don't know what exigent circumstances mean, it's just emergent, emergency, right? So due to like high levels of emergency, um, the, the police are able to get Mario's phone records without a warrant, without any of that, right? They're able to get her, his phone records. And so they, they use his phone records to actually identify where Mario was and place him like where he, you know, where he was on November 10th, where was his phone pinging off of so that they can try to figure out where Shania is. Because now we're on, she went missing on November 10th. And at this point, it's like November, I think, uh, I believe that he turned himself in on November the 13th. And so at this point, we're like, you know, three, four days in, she's missing. And so they identified that, she had to have been somewhere on Highway 87. 
And so they began searching, you know, November 14th, they began looking, they're looking, um, they're asking, they're, of course, they're still asking Mario for any kind of help, any kind of, you know, um, just idea of where she possibly could be. And of course, he's not being helpful. But finally, through his lawyers, because he doesn't communicate this with the police, but all of a sudden, his lawyers actually tell a um, prosecutor where she might like try and like tell, they basically give hints as to where um, Shania could possibly be. And that helps to kind of narrow the search for the police officers. And um, some canine training officers actually volunteer to, to go look in this place that the attorneys say she may be located. And of course they find her and she's lying partially under a log in an area where hunters, you know, cut their deer carcasses. And so um, this is the part that is just truly heartbreaking. She's found dead, obviously. Um, but she was placed, not only, you know, is it just tragic in and of itself that, you know, she lost her life, but that he cared so little about this life that he took, that he put her in a place where people cut and kill animals. You know, they, they, they cut the animals that they have hunted. And so it's just, you know, it's just like, you know, no care, no consideration for the life of this innocent child. And so, um, you know, it, it really, if, you know, I went back and watched some video footage of her, um, of when they found her and even the officers that, that I did, that found her, they were, sh they were shaken. Grown men just, you know, forever impacted by what they saw, by the just brutalness of leaving her just, just there. They found her six days after she went missing. So they found her on November the 16th. An autopsy report identified um, that uh, Shania died of strangulation. So, um, and then they also had evidence of, of the sexual assault. So they were able to prove that sexual assault did occur um, prior to her death uh, by doing some vaginal, oral, and rectal, rectal swabs. And all of those came back showing evidence of blood. Now there was no semen that was located in any of those areas. Um, but the forensic um, expert that testified at her court, you know, shared with the jury and um, the court that that this is this is highly, you know, probable, even likely that there was no de uh, semen because the longer the semen is in there, then there will, the, the more likely that there will be no evidence of it because after 72 hours, semen begins to die. And so the presence of semen um, begins to die. But they did find two of his pubic hairs um, on her body. As well as they were able to, if you remember, I told you that the police had collected a comforter uh, at uh, the, the home where she lived in the trash. And they were able to identify two pubic hairs on that comforter as well. And then they were able to identify some of his pubic hairs on the comforter at, at the hotel. So they were able to, you know, even though there was no semen present, 
in her um in her body the circumstantial evidence of the pubic hairs um in these various different you know places were was able to conclusively you know say that you know it was more likely than not it was hit was mario's so at this point um mario goes up he goes to trial and this is just you know where uh, this is the part of the story where i was like mario was true i mean you know you you already know that he's got to be somewhat crazy but you know as i researched the, the part the trial part of this case i was like this guy's truly off his rocker um he went to trial and he did have attorneys um acting um on his defense however he instructed his attorneys not to present any evidence not to present any closing arguments not to try the case at all basically they sat there the prosecution got up they tried the case and when it was time for the defendant to to present any evidence or to um argue his innocence or mitigate his innocence in any way um he told them not to and so it was a big fight uh throughout the trial uh between mario and his defendant i mean his defense attorneys um, so, of course, the jury came back and they convicted um, Mario of capital first degree murder and the judge sentenced him to death. Um, there was many other crimes that he was also convicted of, but obviously he was sentenced to death on the, the, the first degree murder charge. He immediately appealed his conviction, which just also blows my mind because how do you appeal a conviction that you instruct your attorneys not to defend you on so like it just almost seems like why didn't you just plead guilty if you were not gonna present a defense and then why would you appeal said you know verdict if you didn't even really defend that in the beginning it, it's just it's just absolutely weird but it goes up to the supreme court of north carolina and he and and his conviction was affirmed so he is currently on death row um where he deserves to be quite honestly he deserves to be there and you know i know that you know we could we could sit here and talk about how you know he was likely you know doped up on on cocaine and and alcohol and all of that um but at the end of the day, they were his choices. And he killed, I mean, he killed a five-year-old girl, like for no reason, no reason whatsoever. And not to mention what he did to her prior to her death. Um, it's just, it's absolutely horrific. Now, Antoinette, Shania's mother, she pled guilty to second degree murder and as well as a host of other you know, charges. However, Antoinette took what is called an Alford plea. So if you're not familiar with that, I'll, I will let you know what it is. It is where a defendant does not admit to their guilt per se. So they say, look, I'm not guilty, but I admit that the prosecution has enough evidence to probably like find me guilty and convict me. So, but I'm not guilty. So that's what an Alfred plea is. And so she did that and she received 17 years. Now, you know, 
if it was up to me, I would put her <laughs> in prison at least for life. Like, I'm not sure if I would do um, death. I mean, you know, because I don't even know if I truly believe in the death penalty, but I absolutely would have given her life because ultimately to me, this is um, a crime that resulted from the sins of Shania's mother. Like this would never have even occurred but for Shania's mother, Antoinette, deciding that she was going to give her child up to pay a $200 debt. Let's just sit there for a moment. $200. Now I know that when you don't have a lot of money, $200 seems like a lot of money, but I didn't know Shania, but I could tell you that her life was worth more than that. Her life was worth more than $200. And, you know, I'm just like sitting here thinking, I mean, worst case scenario, right? Not worst case scenario. Like, why did she offer up her daughter? Like, so to me, you know, my mind just begins to wonder, did he say sex or $200? like in general, like, I don't care who I get this sex from, or did he specifically target Shania? Like, because it seems really strange that, like, she offered Shania specifically. Because why not offer yourself? Like, okay, you don't have the $200, like, I don't have it. Maybe he's holding a gun to your head. I mean, I don't know. But like, why not say, okay, well, then me. I mean, why not just call the police? Why not wake Brenda up? This is Brenda's, you know, ex-boyfriend. Like, why not wake up Brenda and the boyfriend that's in the back of the house? I, I don't know. Like, I, it's just so many things that I feel like could have played out differently that would have allowed us to not be telling this story today. Because it just does not jive like with me when I'm trying to piece it all together and then you know you know the way that the story is presented in the media and even in the court documents um and and the doc the court documents that I was able to get my hands on you know easily it was his appeal um so I wasn't able to get through I got some of the pieces of his actual trial um the uh, records, but not all of them. So a lot of my background information that I was able to gather was from his Supreme Court uh, of North Carolina uh, appeal. And um, so it's not clear if in his initial case, if they really kind of talked in detail about, you know, where they believe the prosecution believed that he raped um, Shania. But the fact that there were pubic hairs on her comforter leads me to believe that something transpired in the home. Like something happened inside of the house. Because why else would his hairs, his pubic hairs be found on this comforter? Now we know also that pubic hairs were found on the comforter in the hotel. So maybe something, maybe he did something to her twice. Like, right? So it just... It's really, you know, just strange. But at the end of the day, I, I feel that his mother, I mean, her mother should have been held, you know, equally culpable 
Now, she was able to give this Alfred plea as a result of a plea bargain that she had worked out with um, the prosecution. So because she was helpful after telling two lies, but because she was inevitably and eventually helpful, she was able to get, you know, some leniency on her um, on her sentence. Because with Alfred pleas, the prosecution has to agree to it. It's not something that you can just as a defendant um, say, I'm, I'm going to give an Alfred plea and it has to be agreed to. So, you know, this case, it's it's just such a heartbreaking case, I think, especially for a mother. I, you know, a mother of five, I have I mean, of four kids. I have a five-year-old, um, so it particularly hits home. I have a five-year-old niece. Um, Steph's daughter. And so it particularly hits home for me. Um, you know, I think that the level of evil that you have to be to kill a child is just extraordinary. I mean, it's it's crazy to 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 take anybody's life. My my husband and I were talking about this the other day because he shared with me, you know, because Steph and I, you know, do this show murder in the black you know our friends and family are always sharing stories with us like hey do this story do this story and so he was sharing this story with me about um you know how a, a young infant was murdered and we just you know we talked like how do you kill a child and so as i read this story and researched the story that's exactly what i was thinking how you have to be a different kind of evil um to kill a kid but um in this story, I don't want to overlook the father, Bradley Lockhart. If you research the story, you see that you see him listed throughout. There's many stories and articles about Bradley, and my heart goes out to him. He, you know, admits that he made a decision that he feels like, you know, changed the course of his daughter's life. That had he simply allowed his daughter to stay with him, to not go live with him her mother, that this would never have happened. The grief and the regret that I can only imagine that he has, um, my heart goes out to him. I, you know, I'm sure we can sit here and analyze in hindsight, like how in the heck did this guy, you know, allow his daughter to go live there? But I think that in the moment, he truly believed that that was going to be okay for his, his child and that it was the best decision in the moment. Um, I think that we can all be scrutinized for some of our decisions and hindsight, but at the end of the day, you know, my heart hurts for this, this, this father. I, I don't think that he did this knowing that Antoinette was not a good, you know, that she was going to make choices like this, like, you know, so it, it's, it's definitely sad, but this, this case is riddled with if onlys, right? So what I, you know, what I mean by that is that if only certain things had went different, this case, this case would have either A, never occurred at all, or B, would have maybe could have played out differently. So the CPS actually failed Shania because there were several incidents that would have alerted this, you know, would have alerted, you know, the authorities that there was something going off here at the home and that maybe they would have been able to pull Shania out of this home and send her back to live with her father. 
So law enforcement actually conducted a drug raid on the on the Davis's home just a few months before Shania's murder. And they did not alert the, the uh, social workers about the children. So like, what, really? So that wasn't CPS. That actually was the authorities. What? Come on, guys. That's, that's 101. That's 101. You conduct a drug raid. You see children are there. You alert, you know, you alert the social workers. You alert CPS. Then, and here's where the, the CPS failed. The Cumberland County school officials had concerns about Shania's family around the time, but failed to tell the Department of Social Services until it was too late. I mean, like, had they only, right? So this is what I'm saying, that if only, if only the teacher had done or the school officials had done what they are instructed and trained to do. And I can say that with full confidence that I know that they're trained to do it because I used to be a speech therapist that worked in the school districts. And it is constantly drilled into our heads what we are supposed to do if we ever see anything that is off, that doesn't seem right, we are supposed to alert CPS and let them know. Next, the child protection personnel had held discussions with law enforcement agencies about their responsibility to report child abuse or neglect, but the messages didn't get through to the officers who worked the narcotics that actually went to the Davis's home. And then, um, and so that's, that's, you know, it's, it's just devastating, right? It's devastating to know that those incidents occurred. And yet at the end of the day, if only one of them had just simply done what they were supposed to do, Shania wouldn't even been in the home. But that's an if only, right? And then the other if only is the custodian and the front desk clerk at the 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 hotel. So I, you know, I, I don't blame them, and and I caution you know any of our listeners to to do to do the blame game with them because I think it's easy to you know in hindsight again to say if only you know like why didn't you do that? Why didn't you just follow your gut? But I I want to speak about it because I want to encourage you as a listener that if you ever feel that something is off, it just doesn't seem right. You can't necessarily place why it's not right, but you're like, this is not right. And I don't know why I don't know. Follow your instinct, follow your gut, call the authorities. I mean, worst case scenario, right? It's nothing. And, but Best case scenario, it's something and you were able to stop it. You were able to stop it. So, I, you know, here you had the front clerk, front desk clerk and their testimony to the court was that they did feel like something was off when they saw him come in with the daughter. They didn't know what or why, but they felt like it wasn't right. But they let it go. They let it go. Then the custodian, he really, you know, really felt like something was wrong, um, especially when Mario didn't make 
you know, well, especially when he made eye contact but didn't speak. But he too didn't say anything, didn't follow up on that, didn't call the authorities or didn't go, you know, mention it to the front desk clerk, which then they could have both said, hey, like, yeah, I too, I thought that was off too. Like, let's call the police. Like, maybe this guy, let me write down the license plate. Like, maybe this guy really is not who he says he is. So, you know, I feel like there's a lot of takeaways from this case. You know, that's what Steph and I do at the end of our stories is we say, you know, what what are the takeaways here? Um, my biggest takeaway is to do the right thing. Do the right thing and follow your gut because you never, never know what you could be doing to possibly save because had, you know, the front desk custodian um, I mean, had the front desk clerk and the custodian followed their gut, maybe, I mean, because we, we don't know when Shania died. Like, we, we know she died on November 10th, but we don't know what time Shania died. Did, was she dead when he left the the hotel? Was she? Did he kill her later? Well, if he killed her later, then maybe had the front desk clerk and the custodian, like, followed their guts and called the police, maybe... We, we would have been, been able to prevent the crime. Maybe we would have been able to, to find her sooner. And then when it comes to Brenda, you know, who didn't tell the police what her nephew said and didn't share with the police the text messages, you know, you just think about how had she done that right away, had when the police showed up at six, you know, seven something in the morning, right? Like, and said, you know, and they're questioning her. And she says, well, my nephew said Mario was here. Then Mario would have been on the radar at the very beginning and they would have been able to track him. They would have been able to find him. They would have, I mean, I'm saying would have, but they could have, they could have found him. They could have stopped this from becoming a murder. They, they could have, they could have possibly done that. But because, you know, we, Brenda didn't do it. And, and she she had her reasons, you know, it was because she really didn't think that Mario was capable. She didn't think that Mario would do something like that. She didn't think that Mario really was involved. But at the end of the day, he was. And had she just simply shared all of the information she needed to, maybe we wouldn't be here. So my takeaways are follow your gut, follow your instincts, and then do the right thing. Do the right thing. And sometimes doing the right thing means doing the hard thing. But there's no reason why Shania Davis, at five years old, should have been raped, kidnapped, and strangled to death. There's no reason that should have happened. But, but for the neglect of her mother, the oversight of school officials, authorities, and Child Protective Services, the failure of her aunt to tell the police everything she knew in the beginning, the lies of her mother, and the pure hatred and evilness of a man. We no longer have her here, but we have her story to learn from. And so I hope that you will take that to heart. Sit in this pain for just a second, this heartbreak for just a moment, Think of her father and her loved ones who lost her. 
who didn't get to see her grow up, didn't get to see her live the life that they hoped for her, the dreams that they had for her, all because of $200, $200. So the next time that you see something that just doesn't seem right, but you can't seem to place it, or you see something in the schools or at a store or wherever, and you're like, this is off. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. Thank you for joining me for this very sad but important story. We look forward to talking to you soon. Until next time, Murder in the Black.